So we come to Exodus 32, as I already alluded to. We're encountering now quite a shift in the narrative, or really the story of Exodus, than where we've been over the past month plus. Where have we been? We've been hearing all about the very details about this tabernacle, the special dwelling place of God with His people. But we're now picking back up with the story, the narrative, the uh, chronology of events that are going on in Israel and the people of God's life. And that kind of halted back in chapter 24. In chapter 24, God invited Moses further up the mountain to go meet with him. Remember, this is out Mount Sinai, of course, where God has delivered them out of Egypt and brought them to the foot of the mountain to meet with God. And he's meeting with Moses in particular. And we hear that Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And so it's kind of gone in slow motion in the sense of new events, for nothing's really happened save for seven chapters. God has been giving the instructions about how this tabernacle, this special tent to God to dwell with this people is to be constructed. That's what Moses has been up to uh, over the last 40 days and 40 nights, over the last seven chapters of Exodus. But now we turn back to the story, and while Moses has been up on the mountain, now we turn and consider, well, what have the people been up to uh, while he's been gone? And as we say, they've been up to no good. Uh, What they do here, making this golden calf, this is what's called here the great sin. And uh, this text, over the next couple of weeks, Lord willing here, it's just going to prove a window for us to see into really God's mind and His heart. How does He view sin? What does He think about sin? What is sin like? And this is hard for us to get a grip on because we're very familiar with sin, uh, so much so that we often think it a very light thing. Uh, we don't think it's a big deal. Uh, We do it probably all the time, frankly, so we're so accustomed to it. And actually, we're so accustomed to it, can you just, let me ask you this question. Try and for a moment imagine what your life would be like without any sin and temptation. I dare submit to you, you can't even do it. Because we're just so in with sin. Now, it may be so commonplace for us, but that doesn't mean it's natural or it's good. And so this text is to highlight through Israel's sin how God really thinks about all sin, including our own. So this text comes to wake us up, to have our hearts be aware of what we're really dealing with, with the reality of our sinfulness. So to summarize then this morning, this is really about correcting your view of sin. You need to realign, reprogram your thinking about sin by the way God sees it. That's what he's going to give you this morning in Exodus 32. How does God see sin? So we're going to correct our own thinking. We're going to be transformed in our thinking, aligning the truth with how God sees sin. And so what? So that we can have a right response to it. And we're going to see over the next two weeks, Lord willing, these four right responses to a right view of sin. And we'll just get the first two this morning. And the first one is this, looking at verses 1 to 6. We need to uncover sin's character. We need to uncover sin's character, its constitution, its makeup. This is the first way that we end up correcting our thinking about sin. We have to get to the bottom of it to see it really as God does. This is this section of verses 1 to 6. It's kind of like sin's autopsy, telling us what, what makes sin really a sin. And in that way, then, how does it happen and what does it mean? So this opening set of verses highlights this for us. And so first, we've got to uncover sin's character, its constitution, its makeup. And we're going to find four components of really all sin that are true about all sin 
but exampled here by this golden calf in this great sin. And the four components that really comprise all of sin are distrust, disobedience, disloyalty, and depravity. And we'll cover each one of those. But let's look at verse 1, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so right away, we have this flagrant sin that is just such clear disobedience to what God has commanded. We'll talk more about that. But we're going to set up first. I want you to observe and notice what prompts it or what becomes the excuse for indulging here. And it begins with distrust. It begins with distrust of God's timing, distrust of His Word, distrust of His way. How does God see our sin? He sees it as unbelief, a distrust of Him. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, now when we think the word delay, I mean, we're thinking someone's late, right? They said they were going to be there, and they're not there. Yeah, like a delayed flight. It's not leaving at its full time. But that's not the kind of delay we're talking about here. Namely, why? Because Moses was never told, nor did he tell anyone else when he was going to come. You can't be late. Should we adopt this principle? You can't be late if you never say when you're going to show up. And in truth, Moses is up there for a while, 40 days and 40 nights, uh, but God never told him how long he would be up there. Moses didn't know how long he was going to be up there. And actually, we have this contrasted with what Moses actually tells those he leaves in charge, namely Aaron, his brother, and the other elders in Israel. So here's what he tells him before he goes up the mountain to get the plans from God about this tabernacle. This is Exodus 24, verse 14. So, you know, he's leaving Aaron the babysitter and giving them final instructions. And what does he tell him? Verse 14 of 24. And he said to the elders, that is, Moses said to the elders, wait here for us, that is, for me and Joshua, because Joshua's going to go, until we return to you. So there's the instructions. It's not, well, I'm going to be up there 40 days and I'll be back. Um, it's just, here's the instruction. You need to wait. You got to wait until we're done, and then we'll come down, because we are submitting to God. And faith and response from the elders and Aaron and the people, what should that have looked like? Well, it should have looked like, okay, he's been up there what seems to me a really long time, but I trust him. I trust the God that called him up there. Faith would have looked like, I know he's coming back. He said he would. But instead, distrust creeps in. Listen, we have waited. We waited long enough. I mean, what if something happened to Moses up there? I mean, I thought he was dead right when he went up in there. Who knows how long? As if to discredit God and his whole plan. I mean, never mind what Moses told us. I mean, I think, and this is really the seed of unbelief and sin, isn't it? God has a clear word. Wait until he comes back. And then we start saying, yeah, but... I mean, that's how it started in the garden, didn't it? As the serpent is tempting Eve, he doesn't just start out and say, well, God didn't say that. What does he say? Did God really say? Poses a question. Poses your affirmation of the truth. Is it really true? 
And so the sin starts to germinate in the heart. Now, as sympathetic fellow sinners, I think we can say, wow, 40 days, 40 nights, that's a long time to be up there. They were kind of patient, waiting around. Um, but God doesn't see it that way, frankly, because He has insight into the truth. And I know that because I just look ahead. Look at verse 8 of chapter 32. We get God's assessment on what He thinks about their, quote, long wait. Look at verse 8. They turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them, and they made for themselves a golden calf, and et cetera, et cetera. Again, as sympathetic fellow sinners, you know, that swim in the water of sin like fish, this is all we know. And so we're like, dude, he waited, they waited over a month for something to happen, for God to do something. And God says, no, they quickly went out in gross disobedience. They turned aside impatient, giving themselves over to their own way, over to sin. And really, it looks more like they were just using the delay as an excuse to go do what they wanted to do. That is not trust in God and His Word. That's an excuse to go find a way to justify to do what you want to do. Now, before we chide them too much, yeah, those wicked Israelites, how long are you willing to wait for God to answer? Are you even willing to wait 40 days? 39? How about four days? How about four minutes sometimes, right? God, you got to work quick. I, I prayed like two minutes ago. You're not answering yet. I, I don't know if I can trust you with this, God. That's not faith. That's manipulation. We'll wait for a few minutes, but then we've waited long enough. God, I, I just need you to take away this temptation. I just need you to take the desire away. Otherwise, psh, I just give in. As if it's his fault because he didn't act on our timetable. God, I need a spouse. I need a spouse. I know that's a good thing. And I want a godly one. And so you need to provide one soon. You better. Otherwise, I'm just going to compromise your ideals. God, I need you to heal this disease. I need you to resolve this pain. Otherwise, I'll just have to do what I want. We can no longer believe that trusting him, trusting his wise plan is worth the wait. So what have we done then? We start to grease the slide that lets sin go down so smooth, right? How? By distrust, doubt. That's where it begins. And then it turns to disobedience. This is what sin is. It is namely disobedience to his word. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 32. And we see it just so clearly. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They could only walk by faith in the invisible God for so long. And then they needed a God they could see, a God they could touch, a God they could handle, God they could manipulate, fashion after their own liking. And so they go to Aaron, you know, the deputy in charge as the sheriff is away, Moses, and they demand before him that they make them gods for them. 
And the implication seems, as it says, they gathered around Aaron, that they're ganging up on him. I mean, this is not a, a polite request. This is probably what looks like a rather angry, frustrated mob coming, and coming up to him and addressing Aaron. Make us some gods now. And the implication is, if you don't, they want a gods or gods they can see, feel, touch. Again, that they can see walking before them to lead the way where they need to go. And again, as fellow sinners, I think we can be sympathetic there. We know it's hard to walk by faith, don't we? I would like a God I can see sometimes. I mean, have you ever said, if God would just show up here and talk to me, we might be sympathetic, but that's not how God sees it. This request This isn't a moment of weakness. It's great defiance of God's word and his command and his law that God himself spoke directly to them. Of course, what are we talking about? We're talking about just the Ten Commandments. Remember, we were studying, God gave the people already a lot of laws. He had this whole thing called the Book of the Covenant, but it was summarized by these Ten Commands. And The book of the covenant, all of the laws and the details, those came through Moses. That is, not Moses thought them up, but God told them to Moses to tell to the people. Why did it work that way? Because first, God spoke the Ten Commandments himself right to the people. And what did the people say? They were scared. They feared God. They said, please have Moses stand between us. But the point is, they heard these words themselves. And they understood them. And more than that, when they understood those words coming right from God's mouth, so to speak, into their ears, what did the people of Israel say in response? Yes, they were afraid, but what else did they say? Yeah, we'll do it. Well, what did he command them to do? This is Exodus 20, verses 2 through 5, or 4. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So I'm this God who saved you and redeemed you. So then... What's the commands? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Then he goes on, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It was a clear word, and they clearly heard it, and they clearly said, we're committed to obey it, and yet they disobey right out of the gate. Both of those first two commands. One, to have no other gods. They wanted multiple gods. And then two, to make no graven images, they're saying, make us a calf. Make us a God. God so clearly spoke. He spoke his word, but their wants, their desires got in the way. We saw this already. They don't want to wait anymore. They don't want the one true but invisible God. They want multiple gods, something they can see, manipulate, handle, and touch. And Moses should be saying, yeah, but didn't God tell us not to do that? This isn't such a good idea. That's what Aaron should do. We'll get to what he does in a moment, but, but here it is. When our desires and our wants They're going to run and clash with the word and command of God. God commands one thing, we want another, and there's going to be a clash. And then you got to decide, 
Well, who gives way? Who budges? Who blinks? And the sin in your heart says, well, God's word can give way this time. Because whatever you want in that moment, sin's telling you it's more important, it's more satisfying than whatever else God wants for you. Who knows why? Your desire, your will, your want has to trump over God's. And that's what sin's telling you. Sin has won over in your heart in that moment. Because get this, whenever you've sinned, this is what you've done. You've chosen your want over God's. In other words, why do you sin? Why do you do the bad things you do? Because you want to. That's why you want it, and you want it more than God. And understand, God does not take this lightly. He understands what this is. It'll be talked about more, and it's pictured, embodied here. It's the very heart of idolatry. Why? Because you've become your own God. You've said, I don't want God to be my God. I want to be God. We can dress it up as a cow if you want. Fine. But I'm the one who's in charge. Such that the thing you want most, the thing you love most, the thing you live for most is your God. And I dare say it is you. This is the very reality of sin. It is disobedience and a dethroning of God and his word for yourself. Also, what is it related to this? Sin is disloyalty. God sees it as disloyalty. And this kind of disloyalty comes right from the top. Right with Aaron, the one, the deputy left in charge. For instead of rebuking them or pleading with the people, trying to persuade them to not go forward with this calf, calf, he uh, joins the idolatrous cult and makes it possible for them. Look at verse 2, then, of Exodus 32. So Aaron said to them, Guys, you shouldn't do this. Oh, it's not what my translation says. It says, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. This is interesting. Just pause there for a moment. That word fashioned, that's used in Genesis about how God fashions man. This is about creation of order and design. God is the one who fashions us. And yet now Aaron pretends that we can fashion God. And then the end of verse 4, and then they said, so they make this God, and then they said, this is probably Aaron and his sons, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In that language there that they end with in that great declaration, it's like a confession of faith. It's not by accident they use those words. Because those words to you, if you've been with us in Exodus, they should sound rather familiar, right? Oh, Israel, who brought you up into the land of Egypt? I just read it a moment ago. This is how God starts the Ten Commandments, remember? Before he gets to any commands about what you got to do or what mainly you shouldn't do, what does he start with? He starts with their relationship. Remember, this is Exodus 20, as God begins the Ten Commandments, and it begins like this. God spoke all these words, saying... And then before he gets to any commands, he goes here. I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But then they make the calf and they're like, no, it wasn't. It was that cow. 
This is revisionist history to the extreme. This is gaslighting to the nth degree, isn't it? But you see, this is what sin does. It takes God's clear truth, what even God did, and it gives the glory, the credit somewhere else. So then you don't have to reckon with the true God. It wasn't the Lord who heard our cries. It was this cow. And it gets worse. Aaron leads them even into further rebellion. Look now to verse 5. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And you'll notice the Lord there is in all caps. That's for God's name, Yahweh. So maybe they wanted to think this was a God they'd known in Egypt that now saved them. Seems like a good step. Aaron's like, well, no, no, it's Yahweh. But what you didn't know was he's a cow. As if this is better. Well, is it? I mean, at least they're worshiping God by the right name still. And they seem really sincere about it. They seem even to be passionate about it. We'll draw this out. They're, they're going to get up the next day excited to worship Yahweh, the golden cow. So maybe God says, this isn't the best, but this is pretty good. Well, what does God think about this? We don't have to guess. What does he think about this worship that, well, it has his name on it, but, and it's very sincere, but it's not true. Well, here's the Lord's evaluation. We already heard it, actually. Look down to verse 8 again. Look at Exodus 32, 8. Here's God's assessment. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them, and they made sacrifices, excuse me, they made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped not me, but it, and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They're not worshiping me. They can call it Yahweh all they want, but it's not me. This is disloyalty. This is unfaithfulness. This is shameful sin. And this is what we need to see that all of our sin is before God, disloyalty to the one who made us. And more than that, if you're in Christ, the one who's redeemed us. He redeemed them he bought them, brought them to himself, and it's like as soon as he turns his back, he turns around and they're bowing down before a cow. And the kind of great shame and disloyalty this is, you understand this was a covenant made between God and his people. I think the strongest parallel you can understand is like a marriage covenant. That's why so often in the Bible, you can talk about idolatry and adultery as really, adultery is this, this spiritual reality of what idolatry, worshiping a false god, looks like. Such that it's like this picture. It's like the husband who, who just got married. It's on his wedding day. And he and his wife are driving to the hotel for their honeymoon suite. And he leaves her in the car and he goes into the lobby to get the keys for the room and then as he, soon as he gets up to the room, he discovers his wife's already there sleeping with another man. It's gross. And this is how God sees our sin. If he is God, and he is, he demands everything. That's his rightful place. And how much more for us in Christ in that he 
personally saved you. He came down from heaven and died for you. He redeemed you. Should I mean, how, what kind of devotion can we get from him that's greater than this? Should we not be devoted to him back? He's been so loyal to you. How can we not be loyal to him? Well, ultimately, this leads to this fourth component of sin, and it's depravity. It's depravity. Defiant, gross disobedience. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Just notice their enthusiasm, their gusto over this golden calf. They arose early the next day. It's like when Aaron said, tomorrow's going to be a feast to the Lord. For them, they heard that like Christmas Eve. And they're like kids waiting in their beds just till it's like whatever that time is in your house when you let the kids actually come downstairs. It's six o'clock. Run downstairs. Let's all agree to make it like 930. (laughs) Anyway, they're excited. They wasted no time to get at this party feast of the golden calf, their savior. And they worship, note this, with the very sacrifices that God had required of them. We talked about these sacrifices before, burnt offerings and peace offerings. But interestingly, there's an offering left off. Do you know what that was? The sin offering. There's no, curious, isn't it? There's no sin offering mentioned here with the golden calf. Why? Holiness, purity, judgment, sin. Those are not a part of this God's worship that you make. And are we surprised? Because this God or gods, this calf, it has no vocabulary. It's dumb. It's mute. It's lifeless. And so its intentions and its will for your life are just to the imagination of the worshiper who conveniently, don't we, say holiness, sin, ah, God's not too much into that. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Understand, Paul clarifies this for us in 1 Corinthians 10. This rising up to play was not innocent games of Dutch blitz on cards or football. It's a euphemism for explicit sexual immorality. And the grossest thing about it is they used the Lord's name as if he approved of it. How do you get here? Well, that's the thing about sin. It always leads to more and more of it. It takes you deeper and deeper in, deeper down. It's never satisfied with just a little bit of disobedience. When you start, because understand, when you start throwing off God's guardrails, like you're willing to say, "Eh, I don't need that one. Little else in the end will keep you from running just headlong into rebellion. And where does it start? It starts with doubting. Just trusting the Word of God, doesn't it? Making justifications for why this time it's okay. Such that we start saying things like, yes, I know God's Word says, and you know what's coming, but but the Bible's kind of hard to understand, especially about that verse. You know, it's culturally conditioned to the ancient Near East culture. I went to school and stuff. Or, there's a lot of disagreement about this passage. I mean, I went online and I found like one guy on the internet who objected to what many think it says. Or this one's a doozy, right? It's not in the red letter. 
Jesus didn't say it, so it just probably isn't even the word of God then. Until someday we end up coming down to the, the idea, well, God just, he just celebrates me. He wants what will make me happy. Really, regardless of what that word has said, he's a living God and he's not tied to an old book. He knows me. He wants me just to be happy to pursue whatever I want. Of course God wants me to be happy. He's a good God, isn't he? Of course God wants me to love whoever I want to love and however I want to love them because he's a God of love. No longer does God define anything. We define everything about God. And at that point, if we're saying things like that, I mean, what can you say but that God has given you over to a depraved mind? That's what sin is. That's where it leads. Unless you fight against it, it will pull you there. It's never content with just one more sin, just this time. No, it feeds on more and can say, you did it before, you can do it again. God sees our sin for what it is. And this word is coming to wake us up that our hearts would know what we're really dealing with. That's the first thing we got to do to have the right response of sin. You got to uncover sin's character. You got to see in a word the sinfulness of sin. But then we turn and we say, what do we do next? You need to hope in God's character. When you see how rotten sin is, that means how rotten you are as a sinner. The only place you're going to find hope is not in you, but outside of you. And so you look to God. And that's what we see even here in verses 7 to 14 of Exodus 32. Though admittedly, I don't think that remedy is so intuitive as you first read the text. Why do I say that? Because what we find out frankly about God in verses 7 to 14 is that God is really angry about sin. Like he's fuming hot angry. And so when you're confronted with that reality about that God, you've made him really angry you don't want to hope in his character. No, we feel more like we want to run from him. It's like Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? After he had sinned, he heard God coming. What did Adam do? He went and hid. That's what we want to do before a holy God and our sin. But actually, the only answer is if you draw near to this God. That's where the only hope can be found. It's not found in you and certainly hiding from him because you can't. And actually, we see in this text, verses 7 to 14, what he wants is to draw you back to himself because you know what he's like. So then, verses 1 to 6, this lays out Israel's, what's repeatedly called in Scripture here, the great sin, making this golden calf. And then next in verse 7, we find out what God thinks about that sin. And again, it might not incline us at first to get too close. But here, let's read it. Verse 7 in chapter 32. And the Lord said to Moses... Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God's not pleased. This is clear. And you even see it before he gets to those last words, but he's basically disowning the people. You see that? Go down your people, Moses, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. God's done with them, it seems. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. I mean, what's he saying? I've been here with you people. I've done. I've done. What have we seen with Israel since they came out of Egypt? 
What were they doing right away? Complaining. Saying, it would have been better to go back to Egypt. They've been grumbling since they got out, and this is the last straw. All that he's done for them, all that he's promised them, he wanted to be near them, and he says in summary, you are a stiff-necked people. What does this mean? I think the best analogy I can think of is like when I walk my dog without a special collar on. What does she want to do? She wants to go her own way. No matter how hard I pull, no matter how hard I yank, she is just pulling against me, tracing every squirrel that she possibly can. She is stiff-necked. She cannot be curbed or turned any other way. This people, frankly, God's people, we are stiff-necked sinners. We don't want to be turned God's way. We want to go our own. And he's saying, I've seen enough. Have it your way. So let's start over, Moses. This is an idea. Leave me alone a second. Let my anger burn really hot as I stew over this. And we'll just wipe them out like I did at the flood. And we'll start over with you. But I'm done with these sinners. Now... With all of that said, where are we finding hope with a God like this? In a God that is so fuming hot about our sin. And think of this, justly so. This is not wrong to have God angry about our sin, especially with his covenant people. Why? Think about this. When they came together in a covenant, remember this? What was the thing that bonded them together that was spilled everywhere? Blood. Why was blood being spilled? Because that was saying, if you don't keep your end of the bargain... Guess what? Your blood ought to be spilled. Well, God's cut up his end of the bargain, but the people, they have disobeyed and broken it right out of the gate. And what should be the punishment? Death. So God is just to be angry. He's justly offended. So where is there any hope here? Think about verse 10 again. He talks to Moses and he says, Now therefore, Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make you a great nation. Even the way that's phrased in the Hebrew gives you the indication. When he says, let me alone, this isn't like an unalterable command. Not as if it's absolute. It's much more like, if you leave me alone, if you let me burn in my just anger. Because what's the point? If God wanted really to be left alone and really wanted to burn in his anger and really want to consume them, guess what he would have done? That. And he wouldn't have told Moses a word about it. It is his mercy that he talks to Moses and tells him his real offense so that Moses will feel the implication, oh no, I better go intercede for them. He's revealing his heart to draw in the need that we need someone to come for us. He draws out his heart, God does, telling us what he thinks about sin so that we know that we can get reconciled, so we can draw near again, so we don't just get wiped out. Where's their hope in a God like this? Because he's talking to Moses about it. And he doesn't just wipe them out. And when Moses hears about how God's offended, it's... God's plan works. Surprise. He's compelled and he runs to intercede for them. And get this, as Moses, as we see as the text goes on, as he intercedes for them, notice what Moses doesn't do. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't go, it was just a cow thing. You know, we're, into, we're just into this. It wasn't that big a deal. He doesn't make excuses. You were, he was gone 40 days. I mean, what are they supposed to do? He doesn't downplay their evil either. 
note this, nor does he vow their repentance and say, well, they'll do better next time. He doesn't say that. Why? Because if it rests on them, the stiff-necked people, there is no hope. If your relationship with God must rest on you being a better person, well, I can't even tell you good luck. It has to rest on the character of God. That is the only place hope can be found for a sinful people like them and like us. Moses knows this. He knows this because as he makes appeals, he goes right to God's own character, right back to God. Look at these three appeals he gives, these three motivations he gives out to God about why God should cool his righteous anger against his own people. And the first reason is this, is that they really are his people. That is God's people. In other words, Moses doesn't accept responsibility for them. You know, God was like, no, they're your people, Moses. It's like hot potato. He gives them to Moses. Moses is like, "Uh uh-uh, they're yours. And what's his appeal? They're not my people, they're yours. You saved them after all. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? You might call them mine, but you know they're yours. You redeemed them. Even with mighty wonders and works, you saved them, didn't you? How can you stay angry at them? Second, Moses appeals to God's own reputation. Even in the eyes of the watching world, even those Egyptians, their enemies. Look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, God, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains or to consume them from the face of the earth? And what's he getting him to try and do? What's the appeals to do? It says, turn from your burning anger, O God, and relent from this disaster against your people. This is what he's after as he's recalling the character of God. Turn from your anger. Relent from this disaster. Now, a brief comment needs to be said here about this word relent. Relent against this disaster. Uh, Some of your translations even read, change your mind about this evil. Because that seems odd. I thought God couldn't change at all, for one. And certainly wouldn't think that he needs to repent in any way, as if he'd sinned. And in that, you're totally right. God doesn't change, and he never needs to repent, because he never sins. He never does anything wrong. Well, then why do we have this language here about, God, you need to turn, relent? In our theology, we talk about this as an anthropomorphism. It's in the form of man, It's the idea. God describes himself in ways that we relate to and understand, because we experience it like that. So he puts it in our language that we can understand by analogy. And that's what he's giving us in this dialogue with Moses. So what does this mean? God's always the same. He's always the same God. He never changes. This means he always hates sin. Always. And he always delights in justice. And yet, he is always the same God who also always delights in grace and mercy. And he's those things at the same time, always. I mean, how do you express that about a timeless, infinite God? Well, he describes it for us in emotions that we can understand and experience. That we can, 
be justly angry about something and yet at the same time feel compassion. And if you don't think you can do that, then I, I'm going to guess you've never been a parent before yet. I mean, oh, I've been so upset at my children, angry. Sometimes justly so, like they've done wrong. And yet, at the same time, I love them so. And that never changed or diminished in the least. And God describes us himself in Scripture in this way, in this kind of analogous dialogue way, in ways that we can get our hands around to understand something more about him. And what we see here, oh, he really hates sin. That's really clear. And that won't change through all of this and through all their sin. And so then Moses, he appeals to something even stronger than that, if I can say it that way. He appeals to God's own character and his reputation. Such that, God, if you wipe them out, the Egyptians are going to think you're just an evil, brutal God. Again, verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out or kill them in the mountains or consume them? Just remember, the whole big picture about delivering Israel out of Egypt, what was it about? To God to magnify how great he is. Remember, that was culminated on the sea. After they got through the Red Sea, the people were singing praises to God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you doing marvelous works? And Moses is saying, if you wipe all of them out in the wilderness, sinners though they are, you might be just, you might be right, that might be fair, but that's really going to hurt your international PR campaign. So he appeals to his character. He also then appeals to, that is his reputation, he appeals next to God's own faithfulness, his promises to his word. Look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, God, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, note that, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. In all this land that I've promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Those are words taken right out of Genesis, promises that God gave to the patriarchs. But you'll notice, I want to highlight this, Moses doubles down on those promises when he mentions there in verse 13, remember, you swore by your own self, God, these words. You didn't just promise. You didn't just say the word. You took an oath by yourself to do this, to follow through, to be faithful. And the implication was, it's going to happen. Remember, when he even gave that promise to Abraham, you remember what he did? We talked a little bit about blood and covenant making a moment ago. But it's pictured there in Genesis 15. God makes this commitment to Abraham. And a covenant's a two-way street thing, right? But in this case, they killed the animals and they separated them. And Abraham and the other person was supposed to walk with them through the animals, saying, if you don't keep your end of the covenant, the bargain, you should end up like one of these animals, right? Except, of course, what happened to Abraham? He took a nap and never walked through those animals. But God, pictured in the smoking pot, goes through by himself, saying what? Oh, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to make sure all of these promises come true. No matter what. Not even when those people royally mess up and commit horrendous, gross sins. Can God, can you keep your promise then? Moses thinks so. And he calls God to it. Won't you keep your promises? 
And what does one say to all these appeals? But that evidently God's work of salvation, God's reputation, and God's promise have something to say that can even trump our sin. Look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. There it is. He would have been right to wipe them out, but there's more to this God than justice. He is the Lord. We'll see this in Exodus in a couple weeks. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he summarizes it to say, that's what makes me glorious. Without parallel and beyond comparison. This is why God saves sinners out of death and hell, but to show off how glorious and great he is. That he is the merciful God. And that's not just true in the Old Testament, but it's all the more true for us in Christ. I got to show you this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look just at that word of praise, how Paul opens this letter. And I just want to highlight for you, it's all about our salvation. If you're in Christ, if you trust in Jesus, this is true about you. And how it's been true before time began. And it's all settled on God. But I want you to see why. Why does he do this? Why does he save sinners that are such rebels? Well, let's look. Verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I mean, how inalterable can his promises be if he made them before the world began? He goes on, what, what promises? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Note this, according to the purpose of his will. It is his will, his purpose, and one that even knows all of your sins. And he still saves. But why? Verse 6. But to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Why does he do it? Because he can show how marvelously gracious he is. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Again, why? What does he do this for? Look at the end of verse 12. So that we, and then to the end, might be to the praise of his glory. He saves sinners to show how marvelously merciful he is. And then look at verse 13, if it's not clear yet. In him, you also, moving on, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I mean, that's marvelous. If you believe in Jesus, he's given you the Holy Spirit to make sure you make it by faith all the way to the end. It is guaranteed. He's going to make sure you get it, but why? The end of verse 14. Why? So you are there to the praise of his glory that he is a merciful God. All for his glory, all for his praise, all for his honor, all for his credit, none for you. None of your accolades, none of your efforts in the end. No one works with God to save a soul. 
This is, as we call in theology, the monergistic work of God. He alone works. It's not synergism. We don't cooperate with God to save our souls. And why not? Number one, because you're a sinner. You can't help. Anything you bring to the table makes it worse. And second, so that all the credit, the praise, the thanks, it's his. It's not 99% God, 1% you, or not even 0.1 of 1% you. It's 100% from him because he gets all the glory alone. And you see, here's the point in Exodus and for us. This is the only way a relationship with God can work. It can't be built on laws, keeping do's and don'ts. It can't ultimately be sustained by our obedience to keep making the right sacrifices. A relationship with this holy God, with unholy sinners like us, can only be built and is in Christ Jesus, but on his gracious character. Fully displayed, fully secured at the cross where he bore our sins upon the tree. You don't want a relationship with God any other way. Where we get all the mercy and he gets all the glory. Let's thank him for this. Let's hope in his character. And as I pray, I'm going to ask the men who have already been designated to come forward to prepare to distribute the elements as we celebrate the Lord's table. Father, it is so true that we have no hope but looking to you. Uh, We confess that we are sinners. We confess that we've disobeyed. But we confess that by the work of Christ, you are a greater Savior than all of our sin. May we turn from our sin. May we acknowledge them and repent and walk in obedience because that's what you're worthy of. Work that by your spirit, we pray. Amen.